chapter 2. And uh, we are <coughs> continuing with this late autumn series, H-Mail, from Jesus. And um, Jesus is passionate about communicating with people. The nature of the time that we've got, and uh, I was just looking this morning in the sort of diary for church, and October to me seemed to sort of go on forever, you know, in the sense that there were five Sundays, and, and it seemed a long month, but here we are, sort of 14th of November, We've only got six Sundays before Christmas. Where's Stuart Holmes? He, he was gulping last week, but uh, yeah, so, you know. And uh, so, um, so time's moving on. And uh, the nature of this is that we're going to, just as last week, deal with two churches today. A little bit more easy today because they're both found in chapter 2 of Revelation rather than going from chapter 2 across to chapter 3. But here is the living Jesus passionate about communicating with church. And uh, we reminded ourselves in week one exactly who this Jesus is. And the question is still the same today. Who do you think Jesus is? He's still asking that question. He asked it to the disciples. Lots of people have answers. Some people think, well, he is that baby that came at Christmas. And some people think he's a good leader, a good moralist. But John says, you're the first and the last. You're the beginning and the end. You're the A to Z. You hold the keys of death and Hades. He's the living Jesus Christ who rules and reigns in righteousness, is the one who many of us have submitted our lives to and bowed the knee and said we can't even imagine living without Jesus being Lord of our life. That's the Jesus who writes to these churches. And he's impassioned about writing to these churches and communicating with them just as he is with us. The fact is that God didn't intend to keep rewriting the Bible every few years So he brought together what we know as the scriptures, the canon of scripture by the end of the first century. And the brilliance of the Bible is that it endures forever. So here we are 2,000 years later and it's still speaking to us. I'll show you in a moment, friends, that just as God was passionate about these churches, he's passionate about us. He loves to communicate, he loves to speak because Jesus loves the church. He loves the church so much that he gave himself for it. He still loves the church. He wants the church to be all that he intends it to be. The church is not an afterthought. The church is not something that he he thought he better put in place when things didn't work out as he perhaps intended. The church is not a panic. It says in the Bible that through the eternal purpose of God, he's determined that through the church, the many varied colors of God's wisdom will be declared to the principalities and powers to the end of the age. And friends, our nation and the nations of the earth in these days need the many varied colors of God's wisdom. Because many people that have responsibility in civic and political life are sometimes scratching their heads for the answers. And it's time for the church to bring to the heart of life exactly what God wants to communicate. That sort of church is going to have to be strong. That sort of church is going to be living in the purposes of God. That sort of church is going to have to be uh, loving God with a passion. We looked at that whole truth of first love in Ephesus Jesus didn't say you didn't love me, he says you're just not loving me as you did before. And any progressive, prevailing, advancing church must continue to live in the power of first love. See, churches very rarely decline overnight. They decline by stealth. They decline, friends, from stepping back from where God intended them to be. And some of the great revival, restoration, radical movements that have emerged in the history of time that brought incredible change 
to churches, to nations, to communities, were birthed in a passion about God. Today have somehow, for whatever reason, stepped back from what God intended them to be. And it all started with not living in first love. My Jesus, I love you. I know you are mine. And then last week, following the visit of Gavin and Glenda, we looked at um, not only first love, but also being faithful, Smyrna and Philadelphia. And you can dress it up however you like. I did some research when it said about Smyrna that they were poor. It literally meant that. It meant they were destitute. Whatever the reasons of the context of their particular situation, this church had nothing. And yet Jesus says, you are rich. We live in a Western society. We're defined very often by material issues. We need sort of pieces of metal to drive around in so that it gets us from A to B and makes life work. We live in houses often with a mortgage on them. We pay utility bills, etc., etc. Nothing wrong with any of those things. And they're all vital and necessary for us to live life. But you are not defined by your material wealth. Jesus says man's life does not consist of the abundance of things that he possesses. You are defined in your wealth this morning with your standing in Jesus. That's what really defines you. And Jesus says to these people, even though you've got nothing, you're rich. And then he said to Philadelphia, that you have little strength, and yet you have not denied my name. Two churches that seemed underdogs, that seemed to have little going for them, that seemed as though other people would push them aside, that seemed hardly to stand in comparison with Ephesus. They were the only two churches that Jesus didn't bring any words of correction to. Fascinating. And so we come today to Pergamon and Thyatira in the middle and end part of uh, chapter 2. And if you want a title for this morning, it's simply this, On God. And the passion of the message over the next few minutes, friends, is that every one of us, and I will apply this again later, individually and also together as a community of believers, live our life on God. Pergamon was the capital of this particular area. It was the, it was the city that was the capital of the seven that were, were, were around in that area of western Turkey. It, if you like, it was the Oxford or Cambridge of the day. It was a seat of learning. It was steeped in academia. It was a place where Zeus was worshipped. It was a place where people were pretentious and intellectual. But it was a place where also there was church. And then there was Thyatira. This was a market city. It was a place of great trade. Remember in Acts chapter 16, there was a, a woman called Lydia who did business in selling purple cloth, a businesswoman. She met Paul in Philippi, and, uh, and uh, it, it says that she got baptized, and then she invited them to, their, to her home so that he could minister. It says in Acts 16 that Lydia was from Thyatira. She came from that business community. It was a city of prosperity and wealth, and amongst that there was a church reaching out to the people of God and blessing his name. The church, friends, doing Well, in many respects, as we'll see in a moment, but Jesus brings clear, insightful ministry to speak into the very heart of the people. And his passion was that they wouldn't be caught off guard. Now, if you've watched fencing competitions, and you normally have to wait every four years to watch them because they only seem to put them on the telly when it's the Olympics, and nobody can understand what's going off, but there's a beeper going and All of a sudden somebody says he's won and you're not quite sure of the technicalities of what's taken place. You can say, I'll watch it because I'll, well, no, no, there's no ball in fencing. But anyway, but but I'll watch it. And of course, it all started from the jewels of ancient days. But before the fencing competition starts, the judge will say to both competitors, on guard. 
on God. If there's those of you around the arena church that like cricket, uh, and a week on Thursday we begin our defence of the Ashes in Australia, and uh, of course we're going to win this time, and uh, I'll be very quick to email my Australian friends. Um, as we, uh, I'm saying all this in absolute hope, because you know what goes wrong when we go out there, but, but when a batsman comes out to bats, the first thing he does before facing the bowler is that he will take God. He will take God. And some of them sort of seem to scratch the crease forever now. But he'll take God, so he's ready to face the bowler. The bowler's maybe a spin bowler, but it's a fast bowler. It's coming down at 90 miles an hour. He better be ready. And the fact is, friends, that church needs to be on guard. Some churches sort of move into supposedly what God's given them to do, and the defences are down. And they wonder why it doesn't work. But God has called us to be awake. He has called us to be alert. He has called us to be attentive, because that is what being on guard means. And so he comes to these churches, and first of all, friends, he speaks words of commendation. He says to Pergamon, in verse 13, you have been true to my name. And he also goes on to say that you have not removed yourself or renounced the faith. Now, if you read down a little bit further, they've not renounced the faith, even though there's this reference to somebody that was called Antipas, who had clearly been martyred for the faith in the city of Pergamon. Now, I did a little bit of research on Antipas, and there's very little about him. But one uh, take on how he died is uh, he's not for 11 o'clock at Sunday church consumption, I'm afraid, so I'm going to have to leave it. It was pretty gruesome, pretty gruesome. So the fact of the matter is that this guy had laid down his life for the faith. Christian, interestingly, prayed right at the end of the minute silence for the suffering church and we remember the suffering church last week because it came out of the ministry and thank you for all those people by the way that signed the petition last week that stands with the suffering church but many many people that today do not have the freedoms that we enjoy to live the faith in the way that we're able to live it this church saw that and yet remained true to the lord incredible loyalty And look what it says about this city in verse 13. Jesus says, I know where you live. Arena Church, Jesus knows all about us. He knows about Ilkeston. He knows where we live. He knows about those pioneering steps to go into that town of Mansfield. He knows where we live. He knows all about us. Look what it says about this church. He says, I know where you live, where Satan lives has his throne. Good grief. Satan had encamped over this particular city. Now, as I've already said, the city was engrossed in Zeus worship that was clearly associated with uh, a show of, um, of loyalty to Caesar. And I can't open it up this morning, but very often that would be forced upon people to do openly and deliberately the reality is and the problem was that the christians of the city didn't believe that caesar was lord they confessed that jesus is lord and so it brought them under huge issues and challenges i know where you live it's where satan has his throne now the bible says in ephesians chapter 6 
And verse 12, in a context of spiritual warfare, I'm not going to open all that up this morning, but it says this, describing the enemy. It describes the enemy as rulers, authorities, powers, spiritual forces in the heavenly realm. A pluralized, structured kingdom of darkness that opposes what Jesus wants to do. You might be sat there saying, oh, right, yeah, he's going to come through the door right now, is he, with, with a long tail and a fork in his hand. Friends, you need to see the bigger picture. The Bible says that we're not to be dominated simply by what we can see naturally. We don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. And there is a kingdom of darkness around us that is seeking to frustrate what Jesus wants to do. Sometimes it's very easy to see it. Some of the gruesome things we hear about on the news at times are an expression of the kingdom of darkness. Sometimes it's more subtle than that. And Paul says that we are not unaware of the enemy's schemes. But this is true. And whether you're a believer and have come to Jesus and been a follower for years, or whether you're still on the journey to faith, the reality, friends, is that this is true. The enemy... Call him whatever you like, he's seeking to stand against what God wants to do, not only over the community of believers, but over your life. And you need to step into Jesus Christ, receive him as your saviour, confess him as your Lord, so that you may live in the victory over this. Because the reality is, we have the victory. And all about you, friends, but... I like, I I trust that I can take defeat graciously if I lose at something, but I like to be on the winning side. And the Christian church, friends, is on the winning side. We've got to start believing him. We've got to start taking authority. We've got to start praying for people. We've got to start believing more because Jesus Christ has given us the victory. He doesn't want you to live defeated for the next 30 years of your life. He wants you to live in victory. It's a reality. And the Bible says that we, com- we confront that spiritual reality with our own spiritual reality, being in Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 6, it goes on to say that despite all of that, we are to be strong in the Lord. And having done all, be strong. Talks us about wearing the armor. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verses 3 to 5, it says that the weapons we fight with are not carnal, fleshly. But they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. What are some of these weapons? Well, it's a Bible study in itself, of course. But praise and worship is a weapon where we begin to exalt God. And if you were with us on Tuesday night, we were talking about some of the uh, absolute essential features in general practice in church. The style are different. Don't get hung up on the style. Talking about the principle And a principle of prevailing church is a spirit that exalts Jesus Christ, that lifts him up in praise and worship. It might be done by different means, but the spirit of it must always exalt Jesus. And you come to church sometimes, and as Christian was praying this morning, you may have had some issues, some challenges. You may have had, never mind a day at the office, but a week at the office. You may have had one of those weeks. It may be that it got a bit tense at home for whatever reason. And you come to church and you think that you're the only person that feels like that in the church. And the enemy's saying to you, praising God this morning, you're right, hypocrite, you. What about this? And you, and you, you lost your head with your wife. And, and, 
All of a sudden, you look around and think everybody else feels different to you. The reality is most folks think like you. You see, because we all have issues. And here's a secret I'll let you into. You see, sometimes you might think that Christian leaders and people that are committed to working on full-time staff, when they get out of bed in the morning, they're lifted six inches off the ground and they're just carried along all day. There's never an issue, never a problem, never a trial, never anything going wrong. Nothing. And we just sort of go through life. No, it's, it's not like that. It can be very, very gritty at times. It really can. And I've turned up at church sometimes, friends, over many years, hopefully not too often, but it's absolutely true. Being responsible for leading the service and ministry in the Word, it's probably the last place I wanted to come. Because there's all sorts of things going off. But when I begin to exalt Him, something begins to change. Every time. And you see, it doesn't work for some of us because we don't do it. We don't do it. We allow that lie of the enemy to keep us and captured for the 90 minutes we're in church and we walk out exactly the same. I think that was a complete waste of time. It didn't have to be a waste of time. If you would have engaged in an expression of a spiritual weapon of praise and worship, something would have happened. Something would have happened. And this church, friends, is determined to continue to exalt the Lord, to make his name great, to lift him on high, to exalt him with praise, because something's going to happen. Something's going to break. Something's going to increasingly break. People are going to get healed. People are going to get restored. I'm believing, friends, that folks are going to come to the altar without anybody asking them, weeping and getting right with God, because Jesus is being exalted. And when he's lifted up, he draws all people to himself. The word of God is another weapon. And we were talking about this a little bit on, on Tuesday night. And uh, the fact is that something's being declared now. And the reality is, friends, that God spoke over things to bring life. And you may not be able to remember everything that I've said, and that's fine. And I've had people tell me 10 minutes after the service they couldn't remember a word of what I said, which is really encouraging. But... but But the fact of the matter, something is happening. Something is happening. And there are testimonies around this room of people that didn't think they'd absorb the word. Then they found themselves in a situation and the word of God that they heard in church began to come life to them. And as we continue to declare the word, something takes place. The blood of Jesus and so we could go on. He knows where we live. I've had pastors say to me, oh, I must be ministering in the hardest place in the universe. Where is it? Leafy Suburbiton or somebody. Yeah, well, that's not hard, is it? You know. And we all minister in the hardest place. Rob Webb was in the nine o'clock service, our community uh, police warden, and he was on a late shift the other week, and he was sharing with Di, and Di shared with a few folks around church, and we prayed for Rob a week last Friday but he was out there on sort of the Halloween thing up in the town and it did seem as though it was a place where Satan had his throne because there was a lot of nonsense going off. And that's why the town needs the church, friends, because you think it's bad, how much worse would it be if we weren't pitching up, exalting the living Jesus over this community? And so we need to see it for what it is. I've spoken to people that do a lot of mission 
that have literally landed on the airstrip of a particular nation and the spiritual oppression has been palpable because it's a place where Satan has encamped his throne and the church needs to arise. What about Thyatira, briefly? Well, they were an amazing example of so much that was good about the Christian community. Paul, uh, sorry, John the Apostle penning these words in chapter 2 verse 18 and 19 says, I know your deeds or your works. Matthew 5.16 says that they will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let me just reiterate today that you cannot become a Christian by good works. But you, when you become a Christian, are made for good works. They speaking in Matthew 5, he's speaking about the unbeliever. They will see food bank. They will see ministries that touch people around this church. They will feel your word of compassion. They will see the practical expression. They will see your good works and they will glorify your Father that is in heaven. And we're committed to good deeds. He says, I know your love. I know your faith. I know your faith. In Romans, it says that the faith of that church went around the world. He says in Thessalonians that the faith of that church was known everywhere. If I mention Hillsong to you today, most most of you have never been to Sydney in Australia. It's a long way away. uh, But the fact of the matter is that that church has got a faith that's known everywhere. You might sort of look at Brian Houston and see his latest haircut, and he seems to get shorter and shorter and shorter, because he's got less and less. I could be getting in trouble for this, but anyway. But, but an amazing leader. It may be that you like Darlene Sheck and the amazing ministry of worship that she's brought to that church. Or perhaps the youth are around the edgier sides of what United do and all that sort of thing. But it's a church, friends, that's known throughout the world. There are two things that translate into Uganda in Africa. One's the Premier League, second's Ilso. It's on everywhere. It's on in the supermarkets. It's on in the restaurant. Hillsong. And uh, it's amazing. And um, the fact is that you may think, oh, isn't that wonderful? I wish we had 20,000 people on a Sunday. Wouldn't it be fantastic, Christian? He started, friends, with 100 folks in a gymnasium with no air conditioning that had a passion for God to say we want to be a church that God's proud about that impacts the world. The worship ministry, going to a story that Brian told, was a few tapes that were packed in a storeroom and God gave him a prophetic word and says this worship ministry, at that time led by Darlene and a faithful team, is going to impact the world. And the impact of those songs, friends, is absolutely incredible. Now I say this today with no sense, and I say in submission to the leadership and in accordance with the leadership of this church, with no sense of strut whatsoever. But if Arena Church's faith becomes increasingly known in touching communities, that's a good thing. It means, friends, we're infiltrating. It means we're being salt and light. It means we're being impactive. It means that we're making a difference. And we thank God that we've been able to stretch a little bit over these last few weeks. It's a stretch. It's a stretch. And like I say, the diggers are there at the moment. The diggers are there. And we just think we're building a pile of earth and somebody's, no, you've got to, you know. 
but there's more. And some of you young people with a passion to serve God are increasingly going to have to step up to the plate because you're going to be some of the leaders of the future. And there are churches in this nation and other nations from this church that carry the faith and spirit of this church to impact a needy world. I know your service. I know your perseverance. I know your progression because he says you are doing more now than you did at first. Well, that's growth. That's discipleship. That's going on with God. If you've been a Christian five years, you ought to be doing more now than you did at the first. You ought to know more than you did at the first. You ought to serve more than you did at the first. That's growing as a believer. A number of Christians that have said to me over the years, you know, before I became a Christian, I thought Christianity were boring. But now I've become a Christian. Wow, my life's so full. There's always something to commit to. Great churches. And the writer gives words of commendation. And brothers and sisters, I want us to home in on those examples and be churches despite the spiritual authorities that seek to stand tall over the church at time to be people that will commit themselves to the word, be true to God, be known for our works, for our deeds, for our love, our service, our perseverance and people that are progressing in the faith. And then secondly, briefly, we come to words of accusation. Because in verse 14 of chapter 2, Jesus says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. And he repeats that phrase in verse 20 to the church at Thyatira. Let me say this, friends. Jesus is amazing. He didn't come this, with this finger wagging in your face, accusatory language that was just there to decimate people. Notice what he did. He affirmed the people for all that they were doing in a spirit of love. And then said, but you need to look at this. Parents, try it. Pump the kids up. Tell them they're fantastic. And then tell them about cleaning the bedroom. Okay. But give them a bit of praise first. Those of you that got 30, 40, 50 people working for you at work, pump them up. And then pull that person in and say, work starts at nine, not 20 past. Thank you. And this is Jesus, friends, because he loves the church. And sometimes he speaks so searingly to us, but always with a passionate heart of love. Pergamon. They were holding the teachings of Balaam and, Nicola and the Nicolaitans. And don't worry, I'm not going to dig too deep in this, but I do want to make a valid point. You see, Ephesus had pushed aside the teachings of this strangely titled group called the Nicolaitans. And Jesus says, I also hate it. But Pergamon was in danger of God of allowing things that would bring compromise to the life of the church. What was the spirit of this Nicolaitan group? Well, they were heavy on hierarchy, but lax on morality. And the danger today, friends, and I'll address it again in a moment or two, the spirit in which we're living today is that we can come to a place of being off guard and thinking we can believe in Jesus, but live as we like. And we can't. And what about Thyatira? Well, they let in Jezebel. Now, there's been many debates by Bible commentators whether it was a literal woman and a literal woman called Jezebel, or was it symbolically speaking of something? And that's for another time. 
the impact is this, that the spirit of Jezebel has always sought to do damage to the church of Jesus Christ when the church of Jesus Christ gets off God. Go back to 1 Kings 18 and 19 and you'll find the nation of Israel in complete disarray, devastated by famine. And the two people that were running the nation, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, controlling forces that were hemming the people in and doing them no good. And Elijah came with the word of the Lord and said, I'm going to take on the prophets of Baal that you've allowed to become encamped in the nation. And uh, we're going to have a contest on Mount Carmel and the God that answers by fire. He is the God who we're going to serve. You know the story. Fire fell on the altar and the people cried out, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Elijah still had some issues to work through with Queen Jezebel and he, he got there through, interestingly, the still small voice to his heart. But friends, the principle holds good. And men, don't just determine this of, yeah, well, that's the women. Because the spirit of Jezebel can work across the genders. You see, it's not just about a obvious sort of person that would come in. It's more about something that comes from here. And the Jezebelic spirit comes to deceive. It comes to divide. And ultimately, it always comes to destroy what God wants to do. And the enemy is not bothered, friends, about churches that are deciding whether they're going to come kicking and screaming out of the 19th century. Using language that is totally inappropriate today and who do not want new people to come to their church lest those new people sit on the seat that they've sat for the last 40 years. Those churches are just going to carry on doing that. But churches that want to be prevailing, churches that want to be spirit-led, churches that want to exalt the Lord, churches that want to preach the word, churches that want to say to community, the doors are open, you're welcome. Churches that want to press flesh, churches that want to feed uh, into situations that bring hope and life to people. The enemy does not like those sorts of churches. We need to be on God's. And the way that we deal with that arrogance and pride that the Jezebel spirit carries is through, friends, awareness, through prayer and intercession, and in the right sense of the word, through a spirit that confronts and says, we're not having that. We're chasing, we're after something better that is fueled by the spirit of God. There are people around today who say, well, you see, we don't need the Bible anymore. It's, it's just a book and all we need is love. Well, here's what John Stott, a respected evangelical leader, says. He says, love becomes sentimental if it is not strengthened by truth. And truth becomes hard if it is not softened by love. We need to preserve the balance of the Bible which tells us to hold the truth in love and to love others in the truth and to grow not only in love but also in truth and discernment. It's not either or, friends. It's both. And the heart of God's passion in Jesus to these churches was churches... You're doing so well in so many areas. But you are in danger of being caught off guard by compromising on your biblical values. And friends, the more I 
spend time in the Bible, the more I love it, the more I know and I'm convinced that it is the word of the Lord that endures forever. Here's a little phrase I read this week, nothing to do with this ministry, but it seems appropriate to it. I was reading in another article. See, the challenge of our response to this, and the person said, is that the church needs to be reminded that it's not just called to be church individually, but it's called church to be obedient collectively. In other words, if you say, I believe in Jesus, I believe in his word, I confess him as Lord, but live as you like, you impact us. You impact us. You cannot just live this in isolation. You impact the community of believers. There is a collective responsibility. And the spirit of the Nicolaitans and the Jezebel spirit is still at odds with the church of Jesus Christ today. And we must be on our guard. Someone says God's word shaped our history. And it's no exaggeration to say that our attitude to God's word will determine our future. I spoke earlier, friends, about revival movements, radical discipleship movements that grow out of a great move of God. Some of them so impactive, it's unbelievable. And today floundering, having, having irrelevant conferences that make decisions that take them further and further away from their allegiance to the word of God that they were birthed in. And all across this room, individually, there's destiny. Amazing destiny. And across this room, collectively, arena church, there's a destiny. Friends, we will determine our future by being true to what has shaped our history. That's true for us individually. It's true for us as a church. And if I might be as bold, friends, and there's a battle on, it's true for our nation. A nation steeped in Christian heritage and teaching. that sent people, sometimes at great cost, to the four corners of the world. That is in a battle in these days. About what's going to determine its future. And it needs church to stand strong in these days. And so we're going to serve the Lord. Friends, let me just give you this that I came across also. Because this brings it right down to where we are today. This person says, we live in a culture where tolerance is a prized virtue. Perhaps the only thing that our culture won't tolerate is intolerance. The postmodern world means that many, many ideas can sit alongside each other. It is only when one tries to designate a belief as to the absolute truth that the trouble begins. And as Christians, we believe that Christ affirms, I am the way, the truth and the life we want to avoid arrogance and dogmatism he goes on to say and we do but that can mean we begin tolerating what we should not in the name of reason and compassion we live in a multi-faith culture and need to treat other faiths with dignity and respect and indeed be willing to campaign for the religious liberty of all but engaging in respectful dialogue with other faiths we must be faithful to the uniqueness of Christ and his claims. The church in this third millennium is seeking cultural relevance and we want to communicate with clarity to our culture, and we do. But we need to be willing to adapt and change to meet its needs. But cultural relevance must not mean 
cultural conformity. You see, the letters to Pergamon and Thyatira, friends, hit home today. They hit home today. There are young people across this room that face those challenges in their school and college contexts. There are people, even in work environments, where people said, you can't say that Jesus is the only way to God. But it's what we believe. You can't say that the word of God is beyond something else. But it's what we believe. And without any sense of belligerence or arrogance or lack of kindness to people, church, God knows all about it. And just like he called these people to stay true to him, 2,000 years later, he's saying exactly the same. Words of commendation, words of accusation. I close with words of direction. He said to Pergamos, repent. I am really sad, friends, and I'll reiterate something I said recently, that repentance has been camped at simply coming to Jesus. But if you are to grow in your discipleship, you must understand the principle of a change of mind that leads to a change of action. That is the root meaning of the word metanoia, repentance. I have to say, God's brought me to repent many times. And this church had to change their mind. They had to hear what the Spirit was saying to the church. And he said that if you'll do that, you'll be overcomers. You'll have bread to eat. And you'll be given a white stone. He's speaking symbolically there about a sense of acquittal from guilt. You'll be able to run free from me. And to Thyatira, in verse 25, he said, hold fast to the word of God. If you do that, you'll carry authority. Verse 26, and the presence of Christ. A.W. Tozer was a great 20th century prophet. Through the means of modern technology, you can even find some sites that carry his ministry is a little bit crackly, but a great prophet of God now with the Lord. He says, I fear a whole generation of Christians who believe it's possible to accept Jesus without forsaking the world. In other words, no change. And the challenge around this room this morning as Christian comes to pray in a moment, whether we're believers or non-believers, whether we've been saved 50 years or we're trying to just sort this whole thing out, is that we would bring our lives to a place of conforming to what Jesus is pleased with in these 21st century postmodern challenging days in which we live. Hosea 14, 9, the ways of the Lord are right, the righteous walk in them. John 15, 10, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. Brothers and sisters, God knows where we live. Even if at times we may feel it's a place where Satan has his throne, he knows all about it. He knows where we live. And he calls us today, right across the room, whatever our age, whatever our Christian experience, whatever our ministry, to be on guard. And to live uncompromisingly, graciously, kindly, but continually responding to what he says. And then we can believe to his blessing. Amen.